this is Laura Huey, and you're joining me for Sociology 4451, an advanced seminar on policing. Uh, my co-hosts today, Chewbacca and Leafy, are both passed out. It's like a miracle. It was a coronavirus miracle. And even better, my husband's upstairs being quiet. This is too good to be true. Okay, let's focus on today's topic. I was hunting around for some topic ideas that would sort of go along with some of the themes that we've covered earlier on. And one of, uh, one of the previous discussions was on focused deterrence. And one of my colleagues on Twitter uh, said, why don't you do something on passive deterrence? Focused deterrence is, is proactive policing activity in, in crime hotspots. It's a form of situational crime prevention and it's active and my colleague's suggestion is what about all the different types of uh, deterrence that are also situational crime prevention and are passive that don't require police officers to be out you know doing things arresting people issuing tickets giving warnings that type of thing so i thought this was actually a great idea for a, a, a slightly shorter hopefully than usual discussion and um, let's get started. So what is passive deterrence? This is a form of deterrence that can occur when the presence of actors, and again, going back to routine activities theory, when I say actors, I'm talking about capable guardians. What the hell does that mean, you ask? Well, individuals who are uh, out and about and keeping a, uh, an eye on, uh, on a space, that might uh, be going up and saying, hey, what are you doing? Or get out of here, or, you know, um, asking questions like, uh, you know, where do you live in this neighborhood? Um, that is people that are out there basically protecting a space. So as I was saying, passive deterrence can occur when the presence of capable guardians uh, and or environmental features reduce opportunities for crime. Let me translate that. So we talked about capable guardians. These are individuals. These could be, um, this could be a police officer. It could be a security guard. It could be a business owner. It could be a neighborhood resident. I like to use the example of Mrs. Kravitz. This is going back to the 1960s black and white TV shows that um, probably none of you ever watched, but she was a, I've, I've talked about this before. She was a TV character. She used to stick her nose out the window to spy on all the neighbors and see what was going on. So, those are examples of capable guardians. Environmental features, we could talk about CCTV cameras, we could talk about gates, we could talk about fencing, we could talk about lighting, we could talk about uh, how you cut your shrubs, we could talk about, I would argue, some people might say an environmental feature might include a dog. To me, dogs are capable guardians. They might not speak English, but they speak bark and they also speak bite. And so they're perfectly capable of guarding your property. So I think I might put them under actors. Anyway, those are all examples. Um, obviously actors who are actually out doing something like, what are you doing or biting you are not engaged in passive deterrence. But here's the thing. If you put up a sign that says, beware of dogs, that is a form of passive deterrence. So what are some ex other examples? Well, police officers standing on a corner not doing anything or just driving by. 
anti-theft mechanisms on your vehicle or in your vehicle. So, for example, if you've got automatic locking, uh, ignition locking, I don't drive. So, I remember the old days when we used to roll down the window. Now we have the technology and the window just goes up. I think you have to press a button. But I understand we have anti-theft technology these days. Um, and, of course, as I mentioned before, CCTV cameras. Big, a lot of what I've been talking about is what we call crime prevention through environmental design or SEPCAD. This is an approach that aims to deter criminal offending by manipulating aspects of the built environment. So adding fences, adding gates. Um, other examples of SEPCAD uh, are certain types of hardware or what we call furn or furniture. So for example, if you don't want people to loiter, you might implement a bench that people can't sleep on. Um, or can only sit for very uh, short periods of time because you don't want them to sit and hang around. Uh, I've talked about this before, that horrible music they play outside of uh, certain malls, especially in downtown cores, and all of a sudden you're walking along minding your own business and you're assaulted by some horrible music. Well, that is uh, an attempt at manipulating a built environment so that you won't loiter. Septet is passive. Because designers use natural design elements, or use that, which of course nobody thinks is natural, um, to increase visibility, to enhance sight lines, to deter people from loitering, to, and, and so on and so forth. One of my favorite examples, going back to, um, this would have been in about the, I want to say the mid-1990s, was if you're from Vancouver and you have ever been or you've ever been to the corner of Hastings and Main, there's a lovely old building there called the Carnegie uh, Community Center. It used to be the Carnegie Library. I'm really dating myself here. And uh, back in the 1990s, the Vancouver police worked with the Carnegie folks and city planners to redesign the front of the Carnegie space. One of the issues with the downtown east side is that there, um, there's not tons and tons of space for individuals to sit and have a coffee, read a book. Um, there's, there are some uh, park areas, but you know, there's not a lot of just, you know, uh, socializing with your neighbor space. And in the downtown east side of Vancouver, we have a number of individuals who are, for example, senior citizens who have retired there. Um, we've got a lot of families and so on. And, uh, you know, it, it's nice to be able to go to a community center and to be able to sit outside for the four days out of the year when the weather's nice in Vancouver. Uh, by the way, I'm a Vancouverite. I get to crack that joke. Anybody else that cracks that joke is getting a knuckle sandwich. Just saying. Um, so, you might want to sit outside and, and just chill, chillax. Uh, the problem with that back in the early 1990s was that Carnegie, that particular corner, has heavy congestion. And there's, there's people that are hanging out on the corner. There's a certain level of open-air drug dealing that's, that goes on. There's people coming up. They might want to bum a smoke from you. They might, you know. And so just to sit and quietly read your book, um, it, it can be difficult because people will just be coming into your space. And here's the thing, everybody's tolerance for the intrusions of other people differs. And we can make a whole big argument about, well, you know, I have as much right to be in public space. Yes, you do. 
yes, you have the right to ask for a cigarette and so on, but I just didn't want to sit here and be quiet. And so people weren't using the space because they wanted a sense of being um, able to use it in, like I said, in peace without being part of the, the hubbub, the traffic that was, and trafficking that was going on out front. And so it, it was a huge deterrent for would-be users. So what they did was they redesigned the, um, the side of Carnegie and they create, they used fencing and uh, they used, you know, uh, iron fencing and then iron tables and chairs and so on. So, and of course there's a big, nice shady tree so you can sit out there and get a little bit of sunshine, get a little bit of shade and read your book, drink your coffee, meet up with your friends and so on. But how they redesigned it is you cannot enter that enclosed space from the front. You have to actually sign, go into Carnegie and I can't remember because it's been a long time since I've been in there. but. I seem to recall that you had to sign in or there was there was a desk at the front where you know there were people to greet you and so on so you had to go into Carnegie to be able to access this patio space and what that did was it allowed people to feel safe and secure and able to use it in peace and harmony and so on um, by basically setting up this passive form of deterrence it wasn't, there were no signs saying, you know, if you're a drug dealer, don't come in here, but you know, this is probably, you're not going to just go in to access this space for fun or to look for customers. Anyway, I'm babbling. So I'm going to shut up with a sip of coffee, coffee, hang on here. <sighs> ah, coffee. So good. Okay. Maybe that's the problem. I probably actually had too much caffeine. Let's move on. In terms of passive deterrence, police presence can be a form of passive deterrence. If police officers, and I live in London, the corner of Dundas and Richmond, you'll see the foot patrol people, and sometimes they'll just be standing on one of the four corners, just checking out what's going on in the street space. Um, a study by Golub and others in 2003 drew on 589 individuals who had been arrested in New York as part of their uh, zero tolerance crackdown. And what they found is that the most important factor uh, in deterring would-be offenders was actually police presence. So when they asked people who'd been arrested, you know, what might be, a, might be or have been a deterrent for you, they'll say just seeing cops out and about in and of itself can be a deterrent. Similarly, in a study of robbers, uh, Wright and Decker back in 1994, they interviewed robbers and they asked, well, what, what, types of, what types of activities or types of things would deter you from robbing someone? And their participants similarly stated that they avoided neighborhoods with an increased police presence. So just knowing, and it goes, of course, this is the fundamental, go back to, and I've talked about this before, Go back to the classics of criminology and uh, Bakarian's whole idea of deterrence. Police presence indicates that, that there's an increased certainty that you might, well, I shouldn't say increased certainty. There's increased probability that you might be caught. And in terms of being a rational actor and thinking through, hmm, how do I successfully get away from this crime? You're not going to go pick a place where there's lots of cops standing out and might grab you. 
Let's talk about some ways that you can leverage passive deterrence or how police services have leveraged passive deterrence. One of my favorites, and this goes back actually to the early 2000s at least, is a program called Constable Scarecrow. It costs money to put police officers just to stand about just watching people. And so what a number of jurisdictions have done have created fake police officers. Uh, this is an initiative that in Canada um, has entailed using an image of a police officer, usually like a cardboard cutout, not literally a scarecrow. Uh, and that police officer typically has a radar gun. And the idea with um, Constable Scarecrow is to deter people who might be speeding. So they're driving by, they see a police, what appears to be a police officer with a uh, radar gun, they slow down. Obviously, if you walked by, you would realize, you know, so this scarecrow would not be super effective in terms of deterring people that might want to break into a local business. But if you're just driving by and you take a quick glance out your window, you might be like, oh, better slow down. And I see this all the time. We all see this all the time. Anytime that there's even the remotest possibility of a police officer with a ticket pad nearby, people slow down. The RCMP in Coquitlam stated, they ran a scarecrow project recently, and they stated that they had a 50% reduction in speeding when they used this form of passive deterrence. My colleague Rylan Simpson at Simon Fraser has done quite a bit of work on this in BC, and I had the opportunity to speak with him, oh, it was probably last year at uh, one, or one of many conferences we both seem to end up at, and I asked him about how his project was going. And at the time, he was still in the midst of data collection. Um, however, he said it was definitely showing promising results, but there was one major downside. And the downside was that people, once people twigged that Scarecrow wasn't real, they tried to steal him. So if I remember correctly, the first time Scare they put Scarecrow out and then he was sort of chained to something, well, people actually took bull cutters and, and freed uh, Constable Scarecrow so they could steal him. Then they had to experiment with different ways to try to secure, uh, to secure Constable Scarecrow so that people couldn't steal him. But th there was obvious signs that, that other attempts had been made on Scarecrow's life. So um, this is one of the unintended or backfire effects of, of running this type of program. Another uh, form of passive deterrence involving police visibility are unmanned police cars. So out here in London, and I'm terrible, you know I don't drive, clearly I don't drive, uh, so I never know where anything is. I'm like, it's down there, it's over there. Uh, but there is, on one of the sort of countryish roads outside of London, there is a car that looks kind of like a police car. And we all go by there and every single time I'm in a vehicle that goes anywhere near that white car, they slow down. And I'm like, you know that that's not a OPP or Ontario Provincial Police vehicle. Why are you slowing down? Well, you know, it's just, it's habit. It's a reflex. There was a, a study that was done by Kaplan and colleagues in 2000. And what they did was they placed a radarless speed detector on a roadway where they could record baseline speeds so they could sort of get a sense of how fast people were going. After getting their baseline data, then what the researchers did is they placed an unmanned police cruiser next to the road. And then they recorded speeds for 10 days. Then they removed the car and continued recording speeds for an additional week. 
And what they found is that during the baseline surveillance, 72% of vehicles had speeds greater than uh, 45 miles per hour. After replacement of the unmanned police vehicle, this dropped to 41% of motorists. So they had a pretty significant uh, decrease just by placing an unmanned police car there. What they found is over the 10-day study period, when the decoy police car was in place, the percentage of motorists uh, exceeding 45 miles uh, per hour gradually increased from 27.2 to 47.4. So the, uh, the average drew us out to about 41%. Here's the thing. Probably what we would find is in the first few days, the number of police, the, sorry, the number of speeders decreased because they saw the car. However, if you keep using a roadway and you realize after a period of time that it's unmanned, of course, you're going to go back to speeding. That said, when the car was removed, about 67.5% of motorists were exceeding 45 miles per hour. So when they took the car away, basically, it went back to the baseline. And so they concluded from this that parking an unmanned police car beside a road was associated with a large reduction in speeding over a 10-day period and that removing the car uh, resulted in a return to pre-intervention speeding. So you would, I think, just putting a car next to the side of the road, you get a decrease. However, you'd have to vary that up over time if you wanted to keep your numbers, uh, your numbers of speeders fairly low because it will, like I said, people will sort of twig like they did with Scarecrow and they'll, they'll try to come up with some way around um, or they'll just go back to their their pre speeding their pre um, their previous speeding behavior. I need to stop eating so much chocolate and coffee. It is causing my brain to to like literally get ahead of my mouth. I know that's hard to believe. All right, here's another one. A police sergeant in Darien, Connecticut, Jeremiah Johnson, was interested in. Um, this idea of using lights on police cars and whether or not police car lights could in and of themselves be a form of passive deterrence. Because again, it goes back to this idea of visibility. From what I understand, a police chief in the U.S. had gone to, I want to say like Israel, I think it was Israel, and uh, had observed that police cars there keep their cruiser lights on at night as a potential deterrent and then imported this policy in his jurisdiction and then that caught on with a couple of other police services. Well, Johnson wanted to test this idea by running a multi-site randomized control trial. And what he, so what they did was they implemented, um, they implemented this trial where uh, officers were, t were tasked with keeping their lights on uh, for certain in certain areas at certain times and so on and what his results indicated was that crime incidents dropped when the officers kept their lights on however the only the drop in the number of traffic stops was statistically significant meaning he couldn't rule out the possibility that other crime drops were not due to random chance so in other words Johnson's study did not conclusively say yes having your cruise lights on is a potential deterrent. And if I remember correctly, in, in his own police service, they do not have that policy. Well, some follow-up studies have been done. One was done by Jason Cox with the Vallejo uh, California Police Department in conjunction with DataGov. And what the Vallejo Police Department did was they, they similarly used a randomized control trial to investigate the effectiveness of Code 2 uh, 
lights on a police vehicle, but this is blinking blue and red lights. Um, for reducing crime in a shopping area during the holiday season. So basically, Johnson's was a broader sort of multi-site study. In this case, they focused on, on a shopping, a high-density shopping center. And during a time when, you know, you get a lot of thefts from uh, vehicles, thefts from CFAs, thefts from autos, you get, a lot, you get increased possibility of perhaps robberies, uh, auto theft, and so on. And what they did was they had two police cars that were assigned to the shopping center each day for, for each shift. And officers were told of condition assignment prior to their shift. So they didn't know in advance what they were going to be doing. And were texted reminders. Um, well, I guess they did know in advance what they were doing, but they didn't know far in advance um, what they were going to be doing. Um, outcomes included auto theft, auto burglary, and arrests. What Potts found was there were significantly fewer thefts of autos in the lights-on condition, but that said the overall numbers were actually pretty low. I'd like to know where this shopping mall exactly is. I, I'm starting to wonder if Vallejo is super rich because the thefts of autos, the lights-on condition, there were zero. And for no lights, <clears throat> there were four. There were no other outcome differences that were statistically significant, including um, thefts from autos. And this is why I said I'd like to know where the hell this mall was, because Christmas season, people throwing their gear, you know, going out, throwing their bags in the car, going back to the mall, it, um, they found that there were six, with the lights on, there were six thefts from autos, and there were eight with no lights. So that overall is pretty low and definitely not statistically significant. It seems that the lights on made no impact on thefts from autos, which is something that is, is kind of, it's, it's interesting. It sort of says, um, hey, the, the lights in and of themselves are not super effective. Now, if you really wanted to find out more about the rationale behind the choices that offenders make with, with respect to the police car lights, what do we do? Let's go back to Decker and Wright, or Wright and Decker. We could interview them, and we could ask them, we could ask people that do get caught whether, you know, whether or not, or, yeah, we could ask people to get caught either at the mall or in other locations whether or not they would think that these lights would be a deterrent for them. And quite frankly, I think that would actually be a really good way to sort of put this issue to bed. Speaking of putting things to bed, although it is not bedtime except for the two dogs that are still snoozing, hallelujah, uh, it is break time. That is all I've got for passive deterrence. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you on the flip side.